Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. I'm Eli. And today, in honour of their 50th anniversary, we're talking about the Stonewall Riots. Before we start, we have some content warnings for this episode. Obviously, this episode is largely centered around police harassment and violence against queer people. It also includes broader period typical queer phobia and discrimination, including brief mentions of imprisonment and institutionalization. It also includes historical racism, sexism, and classism, and modern day transphobia within and beyond the queer movement, as well as mentions of guns, sex work, homelessness, and drug use. This episode will also include swearing and the use of queerphobic slurs in quotes, as well as outdated language to describe queer identities, both in quotes and when explaining the thinking and attitudes of the time. I also want to note that using a mixture of she, her and he, him pronouns was very common amongst queer people in the 1960s. I've chosen to use pronouns most commonly used for each individual person in primary sources. That doesn't mean they're the pronouns they exclusively used. This also means, for the sake of consistency in that decision, that I'll be referring to Stormy Delavier, who I've previously referred to in our episode on her using they, them pronouns, using she, her pronouns. Speaking of Stormy Delavier, I'd also encourage you to check out our episode on her, as well as episode on my P. Johnson before listening to this episode for some background on these people and also just on queer life at the time we're going to be talking about. I'd also like to welcome Jason to their second ever history episode of this podcast. I'm glad to be back. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's very hard to get us all in one room and so we have Jason instead of Irene today. In terms of sources for this episode, we have a wealth of oral histories and written sources from people who were either connected with Stonewall and early queer movements or who were actually present during the riots. I referred to plenty of these when I was researching, but it's also worth noting that I realistically could not listen or read all of them. So to that end, I've also relied on secondary sources. In particular, historian David Carter has done a huge amount of work in terms of piecing these accounts together and making a coherent picture of what happened during the Stonewall riots. So I relied quite heavily on his book in terms of the sequence of events and stuff like that. Martin Duberman has also written a book called Stonewall, which does a similar thing. Draws on less oral histories, so with less rigour in terms of trying to make them all fit together, but similarly brings a bunch of oral histories together to mm-hmm. explain Stonewall. So I'm going to start with some background about the queer landscape and specifically queer political movements pre-Stonewall. I only have time for a pretty surface-level explanation of this. Sometime we'll do individual episodes on things like Mattachine and the Daughters of Bilitis, but for now we're going to do a brief summary of these early queer organisations in the USA. I've always heard people say the Mattachine Society, not Mattachine. It's just called Madison? I've heard it both. Oh, okay, sure. Cool. I think it's officially called the Madison Society. Oh, yeah. okay, but people don't necessarily say <laughs> what things are called. Yeah, yeah I just got slack and said Madison, yeah. So speaking of the Madison Society, the Madison Society was the USA's first nationwide homophile society. That's the word they were using at the time, rather than gay. So it was founded in 1950, and Madison largely catered to cis, white, middle-class gay men. It was specifically an organisation for men, So the kind of equivalent women's organisation was the Daughters of Bilitis, which was founded in 1955. It wasn't explicitly a cis white middle class organisation, but that's what it was. So the Madison Society was explicitly a cis white middle class organisation? No, I meant Madison wasn't. Neither of them were. Neither of them were. Okay. (laughs) All right. But what I was trying to say was Madison specifically catered to men and the Daughters of Bilitis specifically catered to women. And they both did cater to the middle class, but they didn't. And the white cis middle class, but they didn't say that in their name, in their constitutions or whatever. Okay. 
So being out as a queer person in the 50s and 60s in the USA was very, very risky. You could lose your job, you could go to prison, you could be institutionalized and subject to a variety of non-consensual medical treatments. Danny Garvin, who was discharged from the Navy for homosexuality in 1967, so that's another thing that could happen to you if you were out or outed, he recalls that the idea of living a long and happy life as an out gay person just was a completely foreign concept and something that he had no models for and no understanding that it even could happen. So he knew a lot of older gay men, and he says most of them were living double lives where they were married, but they were also cruising or in Madison or something in secret. I remember this was something um, that activists talked about when I was doing research for Hardy Milk, that even once it was sort of like getting into like the 80s and 90s and it was comparatively better, younger gay activists would try to exhort the older people in the community, like, it's okay, you can come out now, and they'd just sort of be like, no. Still, yeah, like that possibility is past for us. This isn't relevant to our lives. Yeah, yeah. Even I, at that stage. Mm, I think that's a big conflict that we will kind of touch on or maybe talk about in depth, depending on how our conversation goes, is that conflict between people who had grown up in a situation where mm. being out was an impossibility and people who had grown up or kind of come into their queer identity in a time when that was becoming what you did, was yeah. you came out for political reasons as well as personal reasons. So yeah, Madison, because of this situation, was very, very secretive. They always met with their blinds down. They didn't really advertise publicly. A lot of people wouldn't use their real names in the society or in society publications. Where did they meet? I can't tell you exactly where they met. Because it's a secret? Because it's a secret. <laughs> the FBI knows. Yeah, no, I can't remember exactly where they met. I do know that at least once they were kicked out of their rooms by the landlord when they did advertise publicly. Mm. And the landlord realised that a gay society was meeting in his building and kicked them out. But yeah, I don't know specifically where they met off the top of my head. Did it like, move around though? Or did they have like, this is our clubhouse? They did have a clubhouse or a kind of office, yeah. But that's as much as I can tell you about that. So because of this whole situation, it was very difficult for them to kind of make themselves known and even for queer people who weren't yet kind of involved in queer society or with other queer people to even find out that these groups existed. So in 1960, Madison membership was at 230 members and the Daughters of Bilitis was at around 100. Okay, so reasonably small. Mm. Yeah, and I think there were probably more people who were doing things like reading their newsletters and stuff like that. Mm. But in terms of people who were members, it was very tiny. Sorry, did you say where these organizations like? Were um, based? so Madison and the Daughters of Belitis were both founded on the west coast of the USA, mm-hmm. but they did spread throughout the whole country. So, oh, so they had like different chapters. Yes, they I had guess? chapters. Yeah, mm. yeah, they had chapters. So, yeah, Madison had a chapter in Washington and then a chapter in New York. Mm-hmm. They're the East Coast chapters I'm aware of, but there were probably others. Mm-hmm. And same with the Daughters of Belitis. In terms of what they did and what they talked about, these groups were also pretty conservative to our eyes. They largely deferred to the views of psychologists when talking about kind of what homosexuality was or its place in society, mm-hmm. which meant they largely viewed homosexuality as a mental illness in the same way that broader society did at that time. Randy Wicker, who you might remember from our episode on Marsha P. Johnson. Mm, I remember Randy. Randy was a weird time. Yeah, Randy. felt strangely about Randy. (laughs) Randy was a mixed bag of like, good, good stuff. And like, oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, well, Randy's going to be around some more. So Randy is a man, Mm -hmm. a gay man. Mm -hmm. He grew up in Texas and he joined Madison, New York in around 1960. 
Mm-hmm. And he recalls a member of the group saying to him around this time, how can we expect the police to allow us to congregate? Let's face it, we're criminals. You can't allow criminals to congregate. So there was a lot of internalized homophobia within these societies. Mm-hmm. And they were still kind of fighting about whether they were criminals or whether they were sick and stuff like that amongst themselves before they could even start talking about how they were going to interact with society. Yeah, that right. kind of internalized conservatism where you haven't questioned authority. Yeah. So therefore you're trying to reconcile holding a queer identity with the fact that you don't want to rock the boat, I guess, in society as a whole. Yeah, I think they'd more seen we want to come together as gay people to have a community, Mm. but less sort of we want to come together as gay people to fight for our rights. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that Madison was founded by Harry Hay, who was a communist Mm. and quite a radical left-wing person, Mm -hmm. and the society drifted conservative after its foundation and he quit after about three years or something because of that. So this situation is all much more complex than I'm going to be able to go into. But broadly speaking, they were pretty conservative. So do they have goals as an organization or is it just provide a space for gay men to meet? Their goals were more social than political. So it was mostly just providing a space for gay people to meet. Yeah. They did hold talks and things like that, but their talks were often, you know, we'll get a psychologist or a medical professional in to talk about homosexuality. And that would mean they would be talking about, you know, homosexuality is an illness but it can be cured through therapy and stuff like that. So they get a medical professional to talk to the group or they want a medical professional to talk to society, like wide audience? To talk to the group. Okay, well that sounds very bad. Yeah, Um, there's a couple of women who were in the Daughters of Belitis who even mentioned that this often seemed to be therapists using it as a way to get clients. Yeah, so it's it's pretty messed up. So this began to change a bit in the mid-60s as men like Randy, who we've also mentioned and another man named Craig Rodwell joined the movement. You might remember Craig because he I dated Harvey Milk. I do remember Craig. <laughs> yeah. I don't know any specific facts, but it's possible I know like pet names for Craig or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's Joe you're thinking of with the pet names. But uh, yeah, Craig went out with Harvey Milk before Harvey Milk was very radical. And yeah. you could credit Craig to some degree with radicalizing Harvey Milk. Mm. Just to clear the record up, I mentioned some pet names on the podcast, but that oh. is not the full extent of pet names that Harvey Milk used in his life. He was a very pet name kind of guy. Okay, so maybe we can find <laughs> Just out Just to some... clear Harvey's name. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can find out some pet names that Harvey used for Craig. I might have even come across some in my reading, actually. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. While we're giving you a quiet listening, you might as well add the Harvey Milk episode <laughs> on top of that. I yeah, guess. yeah, I think you should. Because Craig is yeah. on it. So um, when you introduced Craig in the Harvey Milk episode, and I'm just going to retell this story to give oh, you okay. an idea of Craig. Um... Oh, I remember this. Oh, God, <laughs> Craig, no. <laughs> Do you want to tell this story or I'll tell no, this story? No, you can tell the story. So Craig was once cruising in, I believe, Central Park. How old is Craig? Craig's pretty young. Yeah. I'd say late teens. Mm. I can't remember the exact age. Craig got involved with the queer community with activism very young. Mm. Madison wouldn't even let him join at first because he was under 21. And he was really, really keen to get involved. But their rules said, for whatever reason, you have to be over 21. So Craig was cruising in Central Park as probably a late teen. And a policeman came up to him and said, you know, move along. I think they said, move along faggot in particular mm-hmm. and Craig responded that's harassment of homosexuals and was promptly handcuffed and locked up I could tell many similar stories about Craig but that yep. gives you an idea of Craig's unwillingness to take what society was throwing at him basically yep. so Craig and Randy both joined Madison around the early to mid 60s mm-hmm. I just imagine Craig like it getting to midnight and him turning 21 and him being like it's me <laughs> <laughs> it's your boy Craig <laughs> I think that's accurate 
<laughs> no, they wouldn't let him become a member before 21, but he kind of just kept showing up at their offices and being like, right, I'll photocopy stuff. I'll write for the oh. newsletter. Like, I'll do whatever I can do. So, like, it, he didn't let us stop him. That's great. Craig's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Craig and Randy and a group of similar men started fighting basically for gay visibility. So another thing Craig did is he would write under his real name in the newsletter. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Craig is just so gutsy. <laughs> Craig is so gutsy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He really is. I don't have time to go into this in depth, but they did a lot of work fighting against things like police entrapment of gay people. So you could be arrested for solicitation for gay sex. When I say gay in this context, gay people, I guess I mean queer people, same gender attraction people whatever anyway you could be arrested for solicitation and police would often be the ones to solicit and then when you kind of went along with it they'd arrest you yeah so an undercover cop would come up into a bar and say oh can i get you a drink and be very flirtatious and if you said yes they'd arrest you or something Mm -hmm. like that so they fought against this they also fought for the right of gay people or queer people to drink in public bars which is something we'll talk about more when we actually start talking about stonewall randy appeared on radio and tv he was the first openly gay man on TV in the USA, as far as I'm aware, and Craig sometimes joined him in that. Overall, the need to convince the public that they were respectable permeated what men like Randy and Craig were doing. So they focused on creating an image of gay men as middle class. You know, they'd always wear suits when they appeared in kind of their activist capacity, kind of not too feminine, appropriately masculine, all those kinds of things. That's the image they were trying to create. Mm -hmm. And this is why we ended up having mixed feelings about Randy in our Marsha episode. I will also mention that I specifically mentioned Randy and Craig, but there were a few other men who were kind of fighting this same fight with them on the East Coast in the USA. Mm-hmm. I've just singled them out. We're going to talk about Craig a fair bit in this episode, and I've singled out Randy because we had some quotes from him about people viewing themselves as criminals because he was the first gay man to appear on TV, and you know he was just one of the more important figures in this. Yeah, so those two are kind of representative of a faction. Yeah, the yeah, they're representative of a group. So in the late 1960s, with the influence of the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and kind of similar political movements at the time, the idea of working within the system and making yourself appear respectable to appease the establishment so they might grant you some of your rights started to seem outdated. So in 1969, Craig and some friends started a new magazine called Queen's Quarterly, which wrote, We have earned our place in society and it must now learn its lesson that we are here to stay and that our voice is loud and strong. So that's the kind of background on the queer movement up to 1969. Cool. In very, very brief summer. Now let's talk about Stonewall. So Stonewall is on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, which is a notoriously queer part of New York. It began its life in 1930 as Bonnie's Stonewall. That's two words as opposed to one. Okay, yep. It was a tea room, though this was the Prohibition era, so it may have been a speakeasy. Oh, okay, it was a tea room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know much about it beyond its name and the fact that it was a tea room, so I'm making assumptions here, but I think they're pretty well-founded assumptions. Mm -hmm. And the name The Stone Wall came from a lesbian novel which was released the same year that it opened, also called The Stone Wall. Oh, okay, so it had a queer... So it was probably a lesbian... So Bonnie's a lesbian. Bonnie's a lesbian, and it probably probably was a lesbian bar in its beginnings. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. It went through several iterations after that, both queer or gay and straight. Mm -hmm. So in the early 60s, it was a straight restaurant that was used for things like wedding receptions a lot. It was 
damaged in a fire and closed in the mid-60s, and it reopened in 1967 as the Stonewall Inn, which was a mafia-run gay bar. So as I kind of hinted at before when we were talking about Craig and Randy, New York state law prohibited licensed venues from becoming disorderly, which basically included being queer. So it wasn't technically illegal to serve a drink to a queer person, but if you did, that was grounds enough to say this place is disorderly and we're gonna fine it or revoke its license or whatever. Yeah, so queer people drinking was disorderly, yeah. just inherently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People like Craig and Randy did make some progress fighting against this. Mm-hmm. So by the time 1969 came around, queer people drinking was kind of okay, but queer people interacting in pretty much any way. So any touching, any hand-holding, any kissing, any dancing was totally off-limits. Danny Garvin, again, remembers being in an ostensibly queer bar where he was told, do not look away from the bar, sit in your chair facing the bar, because if you turn around, so that could be considered solicitation if you start looking at you know, oh my- the patron. God. Yeah. Oh, wow. That would yeah. make bars way less fun. I wouldn't go to bars. <laughs> yeah, just go to the bar, sit at the bar, Look at your stare drink. at your drink like you're in a noir. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Try and find meaning at the bottom of your glass. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's what it was like. So, um, I'd like to imagine there's some kind of system of like passing notes, blind mm. dates. Yeah, there, w- there were a few things mentioned, and I think it was specifically when Dick Light, who we'll mention later on, picked up Craig, so they um, were a couple for a while. There were some things where they were out cruising, and he says something like, oh, you know, he tapped his foot and looked this way, and then they were like... Ways of communicating. Yeah, okay. Ways of signaling. Yeah, yeah, ways of sing- signaling. Because of these problems in being queer in a bar, um, mafia-run gay bars were very common because they were illegal underground bars and therefore you didn't have to obey all these garbage laws while you were in there. Because it was an illegal underground bar, not just anyone could get into Stonewall. You couldn't just walk in the door. Mm-hmm. The windows were all blacked out and boarded over. The door was this big, heavy oak reinforced with steel door and there was a little peephole in the door. Mm-hmm. That's so apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd come up to the door, they'd look at you through the peephole. If the bouncer recognised you, he'd let you in. They might ask you to describe the inside of the bar to prove you'd already been in there. How do you get in for the first time? (laughs) (laughs) With friends, generally, is how you get in for the first time. Okay, yeah. So yeah, if you're with someone they knew, you could get in, and I think that's kind of how they built That's how word spreads. Yeah, that's how they built a community of patrons, but... Mm -hmm. Is the inside distinctive, or can you just kind of make up what the inside (laughs) of a, like... The inside kind of rundown bar looks like. You'll be like, yeah, there's a sticky pool table and uh, some like green mats on the bar, and they'd be like, checks out, in you go, kid. <laughs> the inside's pretty distinctive. So because the mafia want to make money off Stonewall, but they didn't really want to put any money into Stonewall. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So yes, bars continue. <laughs> bars. So the inside is painted black because yep. they wanted to cover up the fire damage from oh, yep, okay. the early <laughs> 60s. So they didn't really want to put any money into that. Mm-hmm. It Dead. sounds so dark in here. Oh, I think it was. I think it must have been like black inside. There were like colored lights, and you know, later on. Well, I mean, we're talking about 1969 now. In about 1968, they installed um, ultraviolet lights as well. Okay. okay, so it sounds like a nightclub. <laughs> so it was. It's more like a club in that. Sense. I imagine it's filthy. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about. Well, I mean, if it's super dark and all the lighting is like coloured and uh, there's definitely no like there's no motivation to clean health and safety standards being applied here. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. So speaking of OHNS, behind the bar there was no running water. Cool. So they had two big tubs that they just fill with water, rinse your glass in, and reuse it. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Craig blames this for a hepatitis outbreak amongst gay men in I think it was the kind of 
68 kind of time. Oh. Which, you know, I don't think Craig's wrong, frankly. That sounds medically sound. Because there was no... There was also no Where drainage. Where did they get these tubs of water, though? So there was running water in the bathrooms. Okay. So they would also empty these tubs into the toilets when they uh-huh. needed to refill them, which meant the toilets would sometimes... By sometimes, I mean very often, overflow all over the bathroom floor. Ooh. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know that the water that comes out of a tap in a bathroom is clean, but still filling it up in a bathroom. And then being like, I'm going to put things that you're going to drink in into this tub. Yeah. Isn't any good. Did no. I not bring their own glasses? I realised no. that's so ridiculous. I would have brought my own glass. I would have come to Stonewall with my keep cup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, it sounds pretty dire. Police raids were also reasonably mm. common. Mm-hmm. The owners did pay off the local police quite a lot of money. I found numbers anywhere from $1,200 a month to $8,000 a month. With a inflation? A bit. With um, inflation, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, with inflation, that's a lot of money. Um, so How much money can they possibly be making off of this bar? On like a Friday or Saturday night, they're making about $5,000, $6,000. they are oh, making wow. a lot of money. Oh, okay. Is it just open on the weekends or is it open? Like, it's open all the time, but like those are their big yeah, nights. Well, as, um, as continues to be the case. <laughs> As bars are. Are the drinks really expensive? The drinks are incredibly expensive. Yeah, the are they expensive. also disgusting and cheap? The drinks are watered down uh, and hugely overpriced. Oh, that sucks. Okay, so like your standard like young person club now. I guess so. I guess so. The <laughs> no, drinks... obviously it was presumably <laughs> much, much worse. worse yeah. But like, you know, that's 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 a practice that continues. Yes. Yeah, now gay yeah. people consider it an exclusive uh, hip time to go to bars like this. <laughs> yeah, as they did at the time. The mafia would get their alcohol sometimes just like stolen off the back of a truck. Sometimes they'd be buying it under the table from distilleries, so there was no tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. they'd... Surprised they're not making it in a bathtub there, in that bathroom. We there was one bar. quote where somebody said, uh, you know, mafia house beer, why would I drink that? Who, who knows what's in that? Which kind of implied that they might have been making Oh, okay. Yeah, but Man. I never found any other mention. <laughs> I like to imagine just like one mafia guy had a like hobby and they're like, we'll let Tony do his thing. We can sell it. Like Speaking of Tony, the owner is called Fat Tony. Oh my <laughs> god, that's a Simpsons character. <laughs> I could not picture the Simpsons character. I was like, is it head? too stereotypical of me to call this fake mobster Tony? <laughs> no, the, the, the real mobster's name was Tony. Alrighty. Well, Tony, I imagine that you were a bad man. <laughs> Tony was... I'm, I have no evidence that Tony was a good man. We're not going to talk about Tony very much. <laughs> but he ran the bar. What kind of drinks? Like they have like beer. They have spirits. They have like all they kinds have beer. Of stuff. They have spirits. Um, I know they have beer because of Tommy saying I wouldn't drink Mafia House beer if you paid me. <laughs> they do have spirits because I know that, for example, they had a bottle of Smirnoff behind the bar, but that was not Smirnoff. That was some other white spirit that they would decant into their Smirnoff bottle out the back. <laughs> Yep. They did have one real Smirnoff bottle out the back as well that they kept for special customers that they genuinely liked. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and from what it sounds like, if they're stealing alcohol or, like, getting it under the counter, they probably mm. had just had eclectic things that they could get their hands on. Yeah, yeah. Smirnoff, I say Smirnoff, but I think a similar thing is true of most genres of spirit. Mm-hmm. So you just go up to the bar and you're like, vodka? And they're like, nah. And you're like, whiskey? And like, yeah, sure. And you're like, seems like maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think that, that's how it is. All yeah. right, so you say customers they liked... Um, um, so this is run by a mafia guy. Are there, like, yeah. bartenders, um, queer people, or mafia people? Or I think what? a mix. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the staff are a mix of mafia and queer people. Fat Tony himself, I don't know how he identified or how, you know, interacted with this part of his life, but he slept with men. 
Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. But the mafia overall who ran it are pretty homophobic and they treat their queer customers pretty awfully and they'll, you know, say things just obviously about, you know, we hate faggots or whatever. All right, else. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I've been reading people that talk like this for me. I'm sorry this happened to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. I just imagine that would be a bizarre working environment. Yeah. So there's this weird relationship between the queer community and the mafia where, like, there are queer people working for the mafia. There are queer mafia members. They're all in the same bar, but mm. some mm. of them hate gays and some of them are gays. Mm. And some of the ones who are gays probably hate gays. And some gays. of the ones who are gays hate gays. Mm. And like, yeah, it's just oh, a mess. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sounds psychologically taxing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as I was saying, the staff, the mafia paid off the local police. Mm-hmm. So while they still were raided, the raids were much less bad than they would have been if they hadn't paid off the police. So the owners were usually given a heads up when there was going to be a raid that night. Mm-hmm. They'd usually take place on weeknights and quite early in the night, so it didn't really impact business much. Yep. And they'd be able to reopen the next day or even that same night. Yep. And they'd know, you know, we won't keep too much booze and too much money on site because the police are going to raid tonight and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Would they tell their customers or...? Uh, it seems like customers... No, I don't think they'd have an announcement being like, raid tonight at 9pm, guys. But people do say, oh, I'd heard there was a rumour there was going to be a raid this night and stuff right. like that. So, yeah. like, word got around. Yeah. So, presumably, yeah, it's kind of the same thing with the good alcohol, right? They're, they tell the ones they like. <laughs> yeah, and the ones they like probably tell their friends. And people are like, oh, we won't go to Stonewall tonight. We'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, people were kind of aware when there were going to be raids. Okay. Um. So, this all sounds pretty unappealing. The draw card for Stonewall that made it worth going to in spite of the bad overpriced alcohol alcohol and the police raids and the homophobic mafia mm-hmm. was its two dance floors. Queer dance floors didn't exist really at this time. As I've mentioned, not only did the um, state liquor authority consider queer dancing disorderly, but it could also be considered solicitation. I found a few sources saying that Stonewall's dance floors were the only gay dance floors in New York. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of others that kind of mention dancing elsewhere or mentioned kind of being able to get away with dancing elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And obviously this changed over time as queer bars had a super high turnover rate because yeah, yeah, yeah. of the police. Mm-hmm. So probably at some stage they were the only queer dance floors in New York. And but, possibly the most prominent. And it seems like they were the most prominent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. And definitely the longest running. Stonewall was notable for being a very long running queer bar. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think I can overstate the importance of queer people having this place where they could get together and dance and be open in their affection with each other when everywhere else that was illegal. Mm-hmm. Danny Garvin recounts going to Stonewall with a man he'd slept with the night before named Charlie. Um, Charlie asked him if he wanted to dance and he said, oh, no, 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 I don't dance. I don't dance. What if somebody saw me? Mm. And Charlie was like, Danny, everyone's gay here. But Danny said, no, no, I won't dance. And then later in the night, Charlie said, well, do you want to dance with anyone? Is there any man in this bar you find attractive? Mm. And Danny said, yeah, Frank. And then he burst into tears because like this was just so foreign to him. Yeah. Yeah. I love Danny a lot. He's a good man. I also love Charlie. He's like a good man. <laughs> I don't know anything else about Charlie. Well, from that story, he seems like a good man. That's true. Charlie seems like a nice guy. He took mm. Danny to Stonewall. He like helped him get oh. his first boyfriend. He ended up dancing with Frank and going out with Frank. Oh, that's cool. So <laughs> Charlie's a good man. <laughs> so as I mentioned, there were two dance floors. Stonewall was split into two rooms. Mm-hmm. And they both had their own bar, their own jukebox, and their own dance floor. 
Oh, that's pretty legit. Yeah. yeah. The front room was sometimes called the white room. So it was most popular with what one of the patrons, Martin Boyce, describes as regular gays that didn't go in any kind of drag, didn't use the word she, that type. Oh. So the front are room... They also, wait, are they also white? white. Yeah. Okay. So the front room is mostly for cis white men, more middle class and a bit older in terms of the overall average patronage of Stonewall. So you're more likely to get things like closeted businessmen and those kind of people in the front room. Interesting. So the back room, and I'm just going to mention here because I think it's great, uh, because of its time as a reception centre for straight weddings, had a full-size wishing well in the centre of the room. Oh, that's objectively the better room. (laughs) It is objectively the better room. They used it to store booze. Objectively better. (laughs) Um, Actually, they used it to store beer. So yeah, How deep is this? Just like to the floor, I assume. I assume. <laughs> I'm not aware of Stonewall having a basement. <laughs> but there um, was a wishing well. There was a wishing well. So whereas the front room was the white room, the back room was called the black room or the Puerto Rican room. Oh, okay. <laughs> so do, do, do both of these rooms have black painted walls? Yeah. yeah the whole bar is just painted black. I realize that's not what this is about. But... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is about the race of the people yeah, in so the, the room. So the names are racially coded. They're not based on anything aesthetic about those rooms. Yeah, no. The names okay. are, are all about so race. So it's segregated. It's not segregated. No one is segregating it except people are just deciding which room to go into. So it's not forcibly segregated, but yes, the patronage is largely segregated. Okay. Themselves. So yes. it's, but like then, even if it's not an official policy, there is pressure to segregate I mean, them. Yeah, I think there is pressure to segregate. The people who hung out in the back room do talk about how the dance floors had a bit of a different vibe. So the back room, they do kind of more communal dancing. You know, they learn all the weird group dances of the day. I'm trying to think of an example of like weird 60s. <laughs> the Macarena. Yeah, I'm genuinely just thinking about the Nutbush right now. I'm thinking about things like the Nutbush and the Macarena, but those aren't from that time. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. genre. The equivalent shot. Yeah, whereas people in the front room would be more kind of yeah, getting like together in couples. So yeah. people from the back room would sometimes go to the front room for that okay. reason, or just go to the front room because it was bigger and there were more people there and they could kind of show off more. That's okay. Okay. Right. So it's not just a racial split they did have kind of different vibes Hmm. and there was movement between the two rooms okay but broadly it was segregated as well as race the people who gathered in the back room were generally younger as i mentioned than the people in the front room generally less middle class and generally more femme so talking about this demographic split leads us into a conversation about the demographics of who went to stonewall which is a pretty contentious topic there's a lot of disagreement from people who went there as well as from later historians about who went to Stonewall. And I think part of that is because it was split into two rooms. You know, if you were hanging out in one room or the other room, you've got a completely different image of what kind of bar you're going to. Okay, I am seeing, sensing where this is going already. <laughs> That's a factor. Um, so, so most people agree that Stonewall was dominated by people assigned male at birth. Cis women did sometimes visit Stonewall. Mm-hmm. But one cis lesbian, for example, says that while she was never made to feel unwelcome, she always felt like she was a visitor in someone else's territory. I have no sources about trans men going to Stonewall. Mm. Maybe there were some. Mm. Who knows? Nobody's talked about it. Things are more complicated when we talk about trans women or trans feminine people at Stonewall. So many patrons who went to Stonewall say that street queens were a dominant presence at Stonewall. If you've listened to our episode on Marsha, you've heard us talk about street queens before. Street queens were a 
loose group of generally homeless queer teens, and they were often from racial minorities. Almost all were assigned male at birth. Many used female names, she, her pronouns, and dressed in feminine clothing at least some or all of the time. So these people were quite a big presence at Stonewall. But on the other hand, several patrons also note that drag queens, I'm doing quotes here to show specifically they use the word drag queen or the word transvestite Mm -hmm. and note that these people were unlikely to be let into the bar. So what seems to be happening here is that the people who are saying drag queens and transvestites weren't let into the bar are specifically talking about people assigned male at birth wearing dresses. Okay. This has led people to claim that Stonewall was only a bar for gay men. It's pretty obvious that the absence of people assigned male at birth in dresses does not mean it's just a bar full of cis men. Mm -hmm. Specifically in a time when for someone who was assigned male at birth wearing a dress was a very risky decision both inside and outside the bar. So in the event of a police raid or if you were caught on the street on your way to or from the bar you could be arrested for failing to wear three items of clothing that matched your sex and obviously traveling to and from the bar you could also become a victim of just random queer phobic violence. So people such as trans feminine street queens who wanted to found other ways to express their femininity at Stonewall. So one common style was what was called scare drag. So someone wearing scare drag might be wearing a wig and makeup tight pants and a men's shirt tied around their midriff so in the event of a police raid or coming or going from the bar they can just pull off the wig untie the shirt and they're in pants and a men's shirt they're in men's clothing mm-hmm. and they're relatively safe mm-hmm. even though within the context of the bar when they've got the wig and the shirt tied up it's a very femme look yeah i don't mean to make light of the fact that that is coming out of a fear of violence but that sounds like a great look that oh like, i agree that's yeah. very in line with current trends about like crop tops and things yeah like that. yeah no i agree yeah. and i think it's like very cool that even in this time when like things were pretty awful they found these kind of creative ways to work within the rules and like invent cool styles yeah i was about to say i mean that's gonna happen as soon as you create because so like you're saying they had to wear three items of clothing like that's the specific law that was in place the 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 law does not say that but that's so commonly said by both the police and queer people that was kind of the ad hoc rule police used to decide whether your clothing was appropriate or not so the law said that you couldn't be masked or unusually attired in a way that kind of hid your identity i can't remember the exact wording right So the law doesn't actually mention sex or gender. Mm. But when the police were policing gender... That was the kind of rule of thumb that they used. Um, But yeah, as soon as that kind of rule of thumb becomes common, you're always going to get people who are going to subvert that. Yeah. You know, like, whilst it's coming from an awful place, is always going to result in some interesting creative things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was a slightly different style. The people wearing the style were called Flame Queens, which I just think is a very cool name. Yep. Mm. And that's a very similar thing to Scare Drag. I don't know exactly what the difference is. Okay. Yeah, so many street queens were also scare drag queens. So overall, as you might have kind of picked up, this is a debate about whether Stonewall was a bar for cis men or a bar with trans women or trans feminine people there. It's worth noting, however, that street queen, transvestite, drag queen, scare drag queen, flame queen, all these words describe circumstance or behavior. They don't actually give us information about people's gender identities. We do have specific information about specific individuals. I can confirm there were cis male drag queens at Stonewall and there were also trans women at Stonewall. Well, that's that settled then. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go. We're done. Very straightforward. Thank you, Al. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we can't really make a sweeping generalization beyond the fact that no, it wasn't just a bar for cis gay men. Yeah, but we can't yeah, like we can yeah. say we can say for certain that it wasn't 100% cis gay men. Yeah. But Street- we have no 
like accurate measure of what percentages you were looking at. Yeah, yeah. So street queens were a big force at Stonewall, and we know that both from street queens themselves, from other people who went to Stonewall, and also from um, a fair few kind of white middle class men who said, I didn't like to go to Stonewall because it was kind of trashy, it was kind of tacky, it was mm. all street queens there, you know, it wasn't, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a thing. We do know that there were a lot of street queens there and we do know that a lot of them were people assigned male at birth who presented quite feminine in some way, but we don't really know how a lot of them identified. Mm-hmm. So what's the capacity of this bar? I actually have the floor plans that tell me legally how many people are allowed to be in there. So, so that plus me. like 25% or so <laughs> yeah. is probably yeah. what we're looking at. I was going to say more like 50%. All right. <laughs> I'm going to look at the picture and tell you. Because um, like, this is, a, this is a mafia bar. Like. It's true. True. It's Sounds like it was pretty crowded. According to this floor plan that was drawn somewhere around the time, it has a capacity of 185 persons plus five employees. Yeah, right, that's so like 250. We're going to assume well, like yeah. a Friday yeah, night yeah. is yeah. standard. <laughs> yeah, so that's how many people were in Stonewall. All right. I'm just thinking about how many like potential street queens there could have been. Yeah. Had different opinions on things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A reasonable number. Yeah. yeah. Particularly yeah. if it was, I mean, particularly if it was long running, right? Yeah, so it so, ran from 67 till 69. Okay. Which doesn't sound like that long a time, but it was a long time for a queer bar in the 60s. Yeah, well, yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, particularly for the um, street queen population, since you said a lot mm. more homeless. Yeah. You know, that tends to be a fairly transient population. Mm. Yeah, they and are. So the scene one month compared to three months down the line could be very different. That's true. Marsha P. Johnson, for example, does mention that the demographic did change over time. So she says at first it was just a bar for men, then they gradually started letting women in, then they gradually started letting drag queens in. Mm. I don't know exactly what Marsha means by drag queens in that context, if she does mean assign male at birth and in a dress or... Yeah. She could mean anything. Really. <laughs> Anyone in some way assigned male at birth and femme. Who knows? In some way assigned male at birth. <laughs> yeah. In some way belonged later in that sense. You know. Anyway, the point is that there were people of a variety of queer identities at Stonewall. Mm-hmm. At never mind. At the bar Stonewall. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure, you know. Uh, and I, I mean, obviously, part of the reason that people talk about this so much is because who went to the bar affects who was who at the riots, the riot, affect yeah. who started the gay rights movements. I'm doing scare quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to add, just very briefly, something that we've talked about before on this podcast in some recent gender-based episodes that this thing that these people are trying to do where they're trying to pull apart the community and say was it gay men or was it trans women is a modern thing we're trying to put on this group of people and they didn't split themselves necessarily in this way it was both it was a mix it was some people that identified as neither it was a bar for many people to quote miss major who is a trans woman of color who did go to stonewall we could go to Stonewall and everything would be fine. We didn't have to explain ourselves. Hmm. Okay, so we've had our background on Stonewall. Now let's talk about the Stonewall rights. That was the background section? Yes, that was the background section. Right. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I mean, we haven't mentioned the riots yet. That was clearly the background section, right? <laughs> Nothing we like, and then they rioted. See yeah. you guys. Okay, so at 1.20am on the 28th of June, 1969... Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine and Detective Charles Smythe burst into Stonewall and announced, police, we're taking the place. Well, I hate them. I just thought I'd make myself clear. Yeah, 
Okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Their names are smarmy, and I'm sure they're bad people. Their names are smarmy. Pine's quite an interesting person in that we have a lot of information from Pine afterwards talking about how he feels about Stonewall. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's interesting. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so this wasn't a normal raid from the local police. That's why it happened at 1.20am and it was a Friday night rather than, you know, 9pm on a Tuesday. Just when the local police would raid. So Pine wasn't from the local police. He was from the 1st Division of Public Morals. Wow. That's, you know, like, all cops are bad, but... Some cops are worse. Some cops are worse than others. That's a good slogan. Some cops are worse. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike the local police, Pine was very anti-corruption. He wouldn't accept payments. Okay, good. Yeah, so (laughs) partly in order to put a stop to the police corruption that centred around Stonewall, he hoped that night to close Stonewall once and for all. And there it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are other factors that I don't have much time to talk about here, like the illegal alcohol was a major concern. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or pine. There was also blackmail coming out of Stonewall, so the mafia were blackmailing the kind of closeted businessman who would frequent uh, Stonewall and using that to buy stuff on Wall Street. Tony, and, no. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of factors that men... Pine wanted this done. He wanted this closed. Yeah. Most police at the time didn't bother to get warrants for this kind of thing. Pine went and got a warrant, and a warrant not just to raid the bar, but to physically take apart the bar. Oh, okay. Like disassemble the, not the building, the bar, but the bar <laughs> where you buy drinks, the bar. Oh, okay, right. Like, I'm definitely picturing the bar being made of Lego blocks and like, Pine <laughs> being like, yes, I have a warrant to disassemble these blocks. Yeah, yeah. So that was Pine's plan for the evening. <laughs> um, oh, that's um, a worse plan than I have ever had for anything. <laughs> that's probably true. No, it's true. <laughs> it's definitely true. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my defense. Good Lord. <laughs> you know, I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life, but none of them have but been. But they're like buying that. a new bottle of wine at two in the morning. <laughs> destroying a gay bar. As you can see, there's a scale at play. Some cops are worse. <laughs> okay. Jason isn't a cop. Yeah, it's exactly. all right. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Pine wasn't actually particularly concerned with arresting the patrons of Stonewall. Okay. He kind of expected he'd turn up, he'd ask them for ID, they'd show ID, there'd be a bit of a fuss for the ones who weren't dressed in the way that matched the sex on their ID, and mm-hmm. then they'd all just quietly go home. Because mm-hmm. that was what people usually did. That's what gay people usually did when police raided bars. They all just quietly left, mm-hmm. and they came back later that night, they came back the next day, and they just went back to what they were doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the police and queer people just kind of accepted this was how life was. Mm-hmm. There have been riots before. Yes, there have been riots before. This is not to say that people had never fought back against the police. I'm not aware of any before in New York. Yeah. But there had been riots on the West Coast of America Mm. before. Yeah. Linked to this kind of thing. I thought that was just an important distinction to make, given how people talk about Stonewall. That's true. I didn't have time to really go into what was happening on the West Coast of America, but yeah. Yes. On mm-hmm. the East Coast in New York, the expectation was that the patrons would quietly go home, the police would seize some alcohol and some money, mm-hmm. but arrest normally, a few staff just to, you know, yeah. make the point. But normally, the police aren't here to shut down the bar permanently. Yeah, yeah, that's the big difference, is the police are there to shut down the bar permanently. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it was a fun time for the patrons. Mm-hmm. As I've mentioned, particularly for people who weren't dressed in a way that matched their uh, sex. 
The police would herd them all into one room. They'd either have to declare themselves and say, yes, I'm in a dress, but I am a man, or they'd be examined to determine their sex. Yep, okay. I said this in the Fanny and Stella episode, but I would just like to reiterate how similar this is to the case of Fanny and Stella, which was a court case that happened in the 1880s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were also examined. Just to reiterate how far back gay trans history yeah. in this specific way. Yeah. And the fact that 90 years later it was yeah. similar yeah. behaviour. Yeah. So that night, however, these people didn't cooperate mm-hmm. in the way they normally would. So Pine notes that kind of from straight away they gathered all the people who were assigned male at birth and dressed in a femme way into the back room to... ID them and examine them potentially mm-hmm. and these people just weren't taking it they were immediately like talking back to the police and things like that how big a group were we talking I don't know that's such a weird thing to not know yeah that's annoying <laughs> I'm sorry I don't that's know okay. yeah. yeah, I'm sure you did your best well, I mean we've established that like if it's 1am on a Saturday we're talking probably capacity crowd yeah, so obviously yeah. we don't, that doesn't necessarily tell us exactly how many femme dressed people there were Yeah, but probably quite a few like you're probably looking at tens of people yeah i really don't know a number at all but Mm. presumably so there were only the two police officers who came in so there were two undercover cops already in the bar Mm -hmm. two women that's gross two police women had gone into the bar earlier in the night to kind of scope it out to specifically identify employees because employees would be more likely to be arrested because they were running an illegal business not just in an illegal business. Yep. And so when police raided, employees would usually jump over the bar and just pretend to be patrons. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the police women... That's pretty great, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the police women went in to identify the employees without them having a chance to do that. How okay. did they get in? <laughs> One of them, at least, there's a couple of mentions that suggest she might have actually been queer and actually oh. just also gone to the bar as a oh, that's member a of the public. Terrible situation. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised there were police women at this time, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were two at this yeah. raid. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So there was two undercover and then two yeah. police officers who came in? Yeah. So there's yeah. four of them in total. So there's four in total. So, I mean, it sounds like the main distinction from previous raids is just the fact that the ratio of police to patrons is probably way different yeah the ratio of police to patrons at this point is quite low pine did call for backup like once he got into the bar and everything he did call for backup Mm -hmm. so part of the reason was once he got in and all these femme people started talking back he kind of went no we're going to arrest them all and he called for backup for that he also called the emergency services to help him physically carry the bar out of the building (laughs) and take it away Alright. The idea of carrying a bar out of a building just is so amusing to me. There were like two bars, right? Two bars, that's true. There is the front bar and the back bar. Two bars, two jukeboxes. Yeah, they also. Did did they leave the wishing well? They also did seize the jukeboxes, yes, you are correct. Well. (laughs) The jukeboxes also had a lot of pirated music in them, which the police didn't care for. Oh, that's so great. (laughs) Yeah. Good. I don't think they took the well. But then again, the well was used to store booze, which was illegal, so who knows? Maybe they disassembled the well brick by brick. <laughs> Maybe they did. So yeah, they did call for backup, but originally there were just four of them. Mm-hmm. So in the back bar, these femme people started talking back to the police. In the front bar, butch lesbians were kind of gathered for a similar purpose of checking whether they were cross-dressing, mm-hmm. and they also started to talk back to police 
behave in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, patrons who had been ID'd and then allowed to leave the bar instead of going quietly home as the police had expected, began to gather outside. Mm-hmm. You've raised the fact that we need to think about why it was this night when people behaved differently, mm-hmm. both inside why? and outside the bar. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, why is this night different from all other nights? <laughs> Which isn't a very (laughs) wide audience joke. (laughs) I hope our Jewish listeners are laughing. (laughs) It's not even bars over. (laughs) Alice, why is this night different from all other nights? Well, there are several factors. Okay. One factor is this was the second time Stonewall had been raided in that week. Okay. So raids were common, but raids weren't usually that common. Mm -hmm. So people were already pretty mad. And just because of the general kind of feel of the time and i mentioned in the queer movement how attitudes were changing and with things like the black panthers and the anti-war movement how people were getting less happy to just work within the establishment people who were angry about that first raid were kind of already starting to say we can't take this anymore why do we put up with this Mm. stuff like that another factor was that it wasn't as usual early in the night on a weekend to that previous raid that week could be on tuesday this time it was late at night on friday the bar was at capacity so there was just many more people there to react and also they're drunker and they're drunker a um, lot of them are high probably also there's people there who wouldn't normally be there for a raid that's like, true yeah if there's people who only come there on a weekend or there's going to be a lot more people there for whom it's their first time there yeah because it's a weekend and there's more people in general so yeah you've just got a bigger crowd a crowd who's less used to it a crowd who's drunker and higher and therefore more likely to make that kind of impulsive decision. Also, people are just more, you know, they're more into their night at 1am. They're less likely to want to quietly go home. Yeah, that's the time when you say you're feeling it and start telling people you've met twice that you love them and having DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll talk a bit more about Sylvia Rivera later on, but in one of her accounts of the evening, Sylvia Rivera says, oh, a friend rang me up and said, do you want to come to Stonewall? And I said, oh, I hate Stonewall. I don't want to go to Stonewall, you know. And then she said, okay, fine. I went to Stonewall. But by the time, you know, just before the police arrived, I was getting really into it i was saying to people you know stonewall's not that bad this is great oh, so, yeah i love everyone in this bar yeah exactly so and the police walk in it's like i love all but two to four people in this bar <laughs> so that's a factor on top of that it was june so it was the middle of summer it was a hot night it was a full moon it was just a nice night to be out mm-hmm. so people are more likely to just go well you know what i've been kicked out of the bar but i'm gonna stand on the street and you know talk to passers-by about it i'm gonna wait till my friends who are still being examined by the police are let out of the bar Mm-hmm. So these people were gathering on the street, and then on top of that, there's just more people out in general, and people started to see this crowd gathering and come up and say, what's going on? And people were saying, oh, Stonewall's just being raided. And so the crowd started to grow, just mm. kind of random people, queer and not queer, who were out that night. Mm-hmm. Later this month, we'll get into what happens when you try to have a Pride celebration in June in the Southern Hemisphere <laughs> instead. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we've moved our celebration since Well, that's that a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. a bad one. That was a very political decision. <laughs> anyway, in the USA, June is a nice month and everyone's out and ready to fight the cops. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> June is fight a cop month. I mean, what else is pride? Yeah. <laughs> no cops at pride, some cops are worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. You know how, Alice, you and I did that virtual reality exploration of a Egyptian tomb yeah. that one time? 
and that's a thing that people start to do for locations. It would be so cool if they did that with Stonewall. It would be, and like, because the building is still there, you could just 3D scan it and then just put the skin over it of how. And then just like make it look all janky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's still there. It's still a gay bar. It's and you may not have to try that less one. janky now. Yeah, presumably <laughs> <laughs> it's just nicer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a crowd gathered outside Stonewall. Yes. Mm-hmm. Originally, they were just kind of a crowd of people just kind of milling around, but they gradually started to get kind of a bit of a political feeling. So Craig Rodwell, who we've mentioned, turned up. He wasn't in the bar, but he was on his way home from somewhere else. Feeling fighty as Craig was. Feeling fighty. He climbed up on some stairs and he yelled out, gay power. That seems in character and also I love Craig. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's very in character for Craig. People started singing We Shall Overcome Mm -hmm. and chants and things like that. So they started to become a kind of political crowd rather than, oh, what are we doing out on the street? I want to be drunk (laughs) crowd. As people were gradually let out of the bar, so people who had been ID'd by police or whatever, they started to play up to the crowd because the crowd was obviously in pretty high spirits at this point. So they started to, you know, throw up their arms and strike poses as they walked out of the bar and people would cheer or yell out, you know, I'd give that a 10 and stuff like that. Oh my god, that's so good. (laughs) Emerging from the bar and seeing this situation, which he just did not expect, Pine already says that he was pretty frightened. Good, that's how I like cops to be. Yeah, and he radioed for more backup. Oh no, that's not how I like cops to be. <laughs> that's okay, because he radioed for backup, he called him and said, look, I need, you know, some more vans to put my prisoners in, whatever. And a voice responded when he was done, disregard that call. Oh. Mm-hmm. We don't know who was on the other end of that radio. We will probably never know who was on the other end of that radio. Are you going to tell me some theories? So it's possibly someone in the crowd had just managed to tune in to the police frequency because oh, it is just a radio yeah it's also possible that it was the local police who were pretty mad that their cash cow was about to be shut down oh. and pine had not warned them or involved them in the raid yeah. originally so those are two very likely candidates i think the local police is possibly the more likely in terms that they would have had the radio they yeah, would have yeah. been angry about it like and they would have been tuned in yeah they would have already been tuned in and listening yeah it could go either way mm-hmm. um, i hope it was that potentially lesbian undercover cop who was like i yes. can't do this anymore i'm gonna fix this <laughs> no backup at all <laughs> i hope so too i hadn't considered her yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I'm sure that wasn't the case. I'm just sort of like, it would be nice. I just think it's neat. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that is what happened, but no, I think yeah. it's nice. And I don't think it was the case at the time that all cops were carrying radios. Mm. Okay, yeah. So they do mention that there was someone with, like, the radio. Yeah, the yeah, radio well, person. We're not yeah. talking like a walkie-talkie. No, no. Yeah, right. We're talking the radio. We're talking like... Yeah, so that was like the radio guy who had the radio. <laughs> For our listeners' purposes, I'm trying to mime how big I think a radio would have been at this time. And it's like... very wild. It's not <laughs> I wonder if the radio cop was cooler or less cooler than the other cops. <laughs> to the other cops. I suspect less cooler. <laughs> I suspect he was kind of like the nerd of the group. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but either way, no backup came for Pine. That's was, fine. That's fine. That is fine. And it was around this point that the crowd erupted into violence. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. <laughs> they kept raiding this bar. <laughs> so I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of contention about what started the violence at Stonewall and who threw the first whatever it was they threw. So there's definitely an object that gets thrown that starts no. the stuff. Okay. 
Nah. Okay. So, so was an object thrown? If so, what was it? If so, who was it thrown by? Well, objects were definitely thrown. I mean, yeah. In some accounts, it's somebody punching a cop that starts the violence. In some accounts, it's somebody throwing something. Okay, yeah. so so what incident incited the violence? Yes. <laughs> who incited the violence? Yeah. Da, 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 da. In what way did they incite the violence? Those are the yeah. questions, yeah. So by the time the violence is incited, it's already a rowdy crowd. Yeah, it's already yeah. a rowdy crowd. Like, Craig's already yelling out gay power. Like, yeah, it's already yeah. a rowdy crowd. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel at this point that this is a situation from which the crowd could feasibly have just backed down from and dispersed? Or do you think it was kind of a foregone conclusion already before whoever did whatever that this was going to go down? I mean, that's a hard thing to say definitively. Yeah, I I know. I'm sorry. I would not ask you to say definitively. I'd lean towards the latter. So, like, it was a rowdy crowd and the police were already kind of starting to respond violently. At this point, the police were starting to lead prisoners out of the bar into a patrol van. Mm -hmm. Mm. And being quite rough with those prisoners, yeah. and people were pretty angry about it. Depending on what account you're reading, people had already started to throw things at the police, specifically coins. So that was a reference to the police demanding payoffs for uh, gay people to be able to safely drink. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some accounts say that people started doing this after violence had kind of broken out, but some accounts say that people were already doing this. So, you know, there was already not just tension between the crowd and the police, but some level of violence on the police end, if not yet on the crowd end. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think there's a high chance at this point that people would have just gone home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If backup had come, if that call had gone through, I think it could have been different. Yeah. I think that the arrival of more police could have scared people off mm. but somebody intercepted that call and so the backup didn't come oh yeah. wow that's so intense do we have an idea of how big the crowd was at this point it's around kind of 500 or so so people have really been gathering from the surrounding streets yeah as well so... as the estimated like 250 we've said were probably inside the bar so it's, it's a pretty big crowd already yeah so it's yeah. 125 random people versus one cop <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right yeah Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) There are many accounts of how the riot started. I'm going to focus on the three that I'm aware of come from eyewitnesses. So people who say they saw this happen, not so-and-so told me this happened or anything like that. And also a couple which are very commonly talked about. Okay. So in terms of eyewitness accounts, the most common explanation is that the riots were sparked by a butch lesbian refusing to be put into a patrol van. Mm-hmm. Some accounts mentioned that she complained to police about their rough treatment. They hit her and she hit them back. And it was her hitting a cop that sparked the violence. Mm-hmm. One account mentions that she yelled out, why don't you guys do something? And that spurred the crowd into action. Mm-hmm. Enough eyewitness accounts mention her, including three which were written down within the week of the riots. Right. So that's not nearly as subject to influence from you know hearing about it elsewhere or just people's memories being inconsistent Mm -hmm. as oral histories might be enough of these accounts mention her that i think it's pretty safe to say that this did happen whether it was the first act of violence or not we can discuss but i think it's safe to say there was a lesbian who fought back against police very early in the violence of stonewall and this may have sparked the violence Mm -hmm. the next question is who that lesbian was so in 1995 charles kaiser interviewed drag king Stormy Delavier for a book he was writing. It's called Gay Metropolis. It's about a queer history of New York. And he found that while she denied that 
she was this lesbian. Her account of what she'd done that night fit the description of what this lesbian had done that night. So she denies that she is this lesbian in what way? She denies that she is the inciting lesbian. So Charles Kaiser doesn't go into this in that much depth. Okay. He, I think, says she denies being the Stonewall lesbian. The Stonewall (laughs) lesbian. (laughs) Which, you know, that doesn't exactly tell us what Stormy was denying. He doesn't give us a quote from Stormy about that. Right. Interesting. In 2008, however, Stormy confirmed that she was the Stonewall lesbian in another interview Mm -hmm. and said she'd never taken credit because it was never anybody's business. Okay. So there are some reasons that people have questioned identifying Stormy as the Stonewall lesbian. David Carter, the historian who I mentioned at the start, who wrote kind of the book on Stonewall, points out that Stormy was African-American while the Stonewall lesbian is described as Caucasian. It's worth noting that Stormy is in fact mixed race, so her mother was African-American, her father was white, and that we know she was sometimes read as white. She herself has talked about this. Okay. And also it's late and dark. Yeah. And people are drunk. Yeah. Yeah, David Carter says, you know, everyone I spoke to described her as Caucasian or something, which just didn't sound true to me, frankly. Maybe what happened there, as he said, was she white? And they were like, yeah, I think so. And if that's how that happened, like, that's a leading question. And they could just be being like, yeah, I vaguely remember her skin being light enough that I feel comfortable saying she was white. Yeah. Do any of those accounts that were written in the first week afterwards... Mention her race. Talk about the appearance of the person. They do talk about her appearance and they're quite consistent in describing her as kind of a quite tall, large woman, kind of a stereotypically butch woman, just kind of fitting into that aesthetic of the time. Mm -hmm. But none of them mention her race that I'm aware of. Obviously, Carter has some accounts I don't have access to or some accounts that I didn't read or listen to because there's so many. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just wanted to dismiss that one of Carter's arguments. Mm -hmm. Carter also questions why it took so long to identify Stormy as the Stonewall lesbian. So the first identification, as I mentioned, that I'm aware of in 95, she only said it was her in 2008. Mm -hmm. Carter also notes that especially since she was a very well-known figure in New York's lesbian community, this just kind of doesn't add up. And that may be a fair point. That Um, does seem kind of reasonable. It does seem quite reasonable, yeah. I know that Stormy only settled in New York after 69, but she was performing and touring to places including New York, and I'm willing to believe, Carter, that she was quite known in the lesbian community at that time. I do want to note that I'm only aware of one account of the Stonewall lesbian by a lesbian. There aren't many accounts of the Stonewall riots by lesbians, Mm -hmm. so maybe we're asking the wrong people. But, you know, I think it is a fair point. Why did this never come out before, if it was Stormy? Yep. Lastly, witnesses say that the lesbian was arrested inside the bar or recall her being escorted to the patrol car from the door of the bar. By Stormy's own account, she wasn't in the bar at all. She was passing on the street. She saw the crowd. She saw a friend who had been knocked to the ground by police near the bar's entrance. Mm -hmm. She went over to help him and a policeman told her to move along and... That was when she was hit by the policeman and she hit back. But if she went to, like, the door of the bar and then was arrested and people looked up and sort of mm. being led away from there, they would very naturally assume that she had been in the bar and was being escorted out. Yeah, yeah. There is one employee who says he saw her arrested in the bar, which okay, well, makes that not work. But, yeah. yeah, most accounts do say she was coming from the door of the bar but don't necessarily know whether she was inside the bar. So mm. that's most of the information I have about Stormy or about the Stonewall lesbian. Mm-hmm. So that's theory one. That's theory of how many? one of three major eyewitness theories. Cool. 
So let's move on to theory two. Several witnesses also credit a drag queen with inciting the violence at Stonewall. Some name her specifically as 17-year-old Tammy Novak, who swung her purse at police trying to put her in the patrol van. Well, that's interesting because I've never heard of Tammy before. I have never heard of Tammy before either. What's Tammy up to these days? I don't know. I think part of the reason that we've heard of Stormy but we haven't heard of Tammy is because Stormy was very involved with the community after that. She has spoken about her involvement at Stonewall and things like that. Cannot track down any information on Tammy. Mm. I know nothing about Tammy. I mean, I know things about Tammy at the time. So Tammy was one of the few drag queens who was allowed into Stonewall. So she was allowed into Stonewall in a dress, despite being assigned male at birth, mm-hmm. because she had connections with some of the staff. So she lived with some of the staff. They knew her. They'd let her in. Okay. Yeah. That's all I know about Tammy. Okay, cool. Nobody talks about Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag justice for Tammy. <laughs> yeah. Theory three is Raymond Castro, a Puerto Rican gay man. He says he was handcuffed by police outside the door of the bar, but he fought back when they tried to put him into the patrol van. And this matches several other eyewitness accounts that describe the catalyst of the violence as being a man fighting back when he was put into the patrol van and seemed to kind of match up with Ray's own account of what happened. So those are the only three people that I'm aware of being mentioned as sparking violence in eyewitness accounts of Stonewall. Mm-hmm. You will notice the absence mm-hmm. of Marshall P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who... Or, I have noticed that. <laughs> I, I have also noticed the lack of a brick. Or of a shot glass. Yes, yes. All those three people are credited with punching or hitting with a purse or what Ray says he did is they tried to get him in the van, he planted his feet on either side of the door and just kind of pushed himself backwards and knocked the cops over. I mean, that's great. Which is pretty great, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, visually stunning, 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Ray. <laughs> when I was doing that and he was like, I planted a foot on either side of the patrol van door, I was like, how wide is the door of a patrol van, Ray? Like, it's a vehicle. That takes some flexibility. I think I was picturing the back doors. But you're probably actually oh, thinking too, but... what, what you should probably be picturing is one side yeah. of the back door. I assume that's than, what he actually yeah. Like, it's probably not the whole back of the car is open. It's, I think, like, divvy vans often have, like, a single door yeah. on the back that opens up. Yeah, I think so. And I think that is what Ray really meant. But originally I was just like, that's incredible acrobatics, Ray. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Natural 20 acrobatics, Jack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Ray is also another person you never hear mentioned. It's mm-hmm. true. It's true. So shout out to Ray Castro. Mm-hmm. All three, the lesbian, Tammy and Ray, are mentioned in eyewitness accounts. The lesbian is mentioned in more eyewitness accounts. You know, they're all there. And I think it's pretty likely that all three of those things happened around the time the violence started. Which happened first? I can't say. Maybe they happened simultaneously. But I would say they all happened and all had some role in inciting violence. Mm. Yeah. Like there were hundreds of people there. But I don't think we can pull out one of those three incidents as the incident. So let's talk about Marsha and Sylvia. It's very common in modern conversations about Stonewall to hear Marsha P. Johnson credited with inciting the riots. We have a whole episode on Marsha P. Johnson that I encourage you to listen to. Marsha P. Johnson at the time was in her early 20s. She was an African-American drag queen. She's sometimes identified as a street queen, though she's a bit kind of older than that crowd. Mm-hmm. But she was living on the streets of New York at that time and involved and quite readily identified by the queer community. Mm-hmm. And she herself has said that she did go to Stonewall. She did drink at that bar. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the story about Marsha starting the riots goes that when police first entered the bar, Marsha threw a shot glass in a mirror and yelled out, I've got my civil rights. I'm not aware of any eyewitness account that mentions this. And it's also worth noting that we have Pine's accounts of what happened inside the bar where he talks about femme people fighting back. 
Mm-hmm. And if somebody had smashed a mirror with a shot glass, I think that would be worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Was there a mirror? I am not aware of a mirror. I can't think of any other mention of a mirror, no. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> there well, may have I, been a mirror. I think no, no. it's worth asking. Yeah, De- Detective Eli is on the case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know of any photos of the interior of Stonewall. Oh, that sucks. So that sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there were mirrors in the bathrooms because I know that drag queens and scare queens mm-hmm. would complain that the lighting was really bad in the women's bathroom and they couldn't put their makeup on. So they were trying to do makeup in these mirrors. Yep. Yeah. But, I mean, that story when it's told is not told with the suggestion that she was standing in the bathroom. No, but they did use the bathroom sometimes to examine people to determine their sex. Oh, okay. So they'd gather okay. them all in the back room and they'd take them into the bathroom and examine them. So, like, Marsha being in the bathroom next to a mirror, there's a okay. mirror all available. Right. Sure. But yeah. there's no eyewitness account of this happening. Mm-hmm. Also, like, if it's inciting the crowd having it be in like one room of a Turo bar makes yeah. sense if the femme presenting people had been put there it being in a bathroom seems much more removed yeah that's true how can you incite a riot from a bar bathroom yeah yeah i mean it sounds like from pine's account that there was some violence inside the bar but i don't think you can say that that incited the riot outside yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that just doesn't logically follow yeah, yeah. I also think that there would be an eyewitness account. We have accounts of people who were in that back room of the bar and they don't mention it. I don't know of a first-hand account of this story. So was Marsha there that night? Well, what Marsha herself says mm-hmm. is that she arrived at Stonewall around 2am. So you'll remember I mentioned the cops arrived at 1.20. Mm-hmm. Or the cops, not the undercover cops, but you know, Pine yeah, yeah. arrived at 1.20. And she says, quote, the place was already on fire. The riots had already started. Okay. So. So. You know. (laughs) You know. That's about as definitive as you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. So where does this story come from? How far can we trace it back? That's a good question. So Carter cites that he heard this story from Robin Souza. Robin Souza was not an eyewitness. Mm -hmm. Robin, in turn... Heard it from two people, Marty Robinson and Morty Manford. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any accounts from Marty of what he may or may not have seen. Mm-hmm. Morty has given several accounts of the riots and what he did and saw in the riots, and he's never mentioned this in any of the accounts that I have read. Okay. So I can't really give you a good origin for the story. Mm-hmm. It seems unlikely that it was just being mentioned in Carter's book that kind of popularized it because Carter mentions it in a footnote in which he discredits it. He doesn't put it into the Mm. text of his book. So it was, I'd say, around before then, but Mm -hmm. I don't really know from where or who. Yeah, so that's that. That's that. (laughs) That's that's the shot glass Marsha P. Johnson side of things. Yeah, I don't think Marsha P. Johnson threw the shot glass. I'm sorry. Are there any other contenders for who threw the shot glass? No, there's no other discussion about the shot glass. Though talking about Sylvia Rivera, the first account I'm aware of which gives Sylvia credit for inciting the riots comes in the 90s and says she threw an empty gin bottle against the door of the bar. So it's not a shot glass, but it's got a spirit. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's also against the door, so that seems more plausible. Yeah, I'm sure there were doors. (laughs) (laughs) We'll not question that. (laughs) We've established that there was one door at least. Sylvia's personal account, like Marsha's, doesn't bear this out. In 2001, Sylvia says that she was in the bar that night, but I've been given credit for throwing the first Molotov cocktail by many historians, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. I did not throw the first one. 
So Molotov cocktail is a figurative term here, or...? (laughs) What they were doing was putting lighter fluid in bottles and lighting that. So no. So lighter fluid doesn't burn very hot. Lighter fluid has like a super low Uh ignition point, so it's not necessarily fire that's going to burn you, but it looks like a Molotov cocktail, and the police didn't know they weren't Molotov cocktails. Pine talks about there being Molotov cocktails as though he generally believed these were bottles that were going to explode and really hurt him. Yeah, wow, okay. So... That's yes intense. and no. Yeah. Wow, they went from zero to Molotov cocktail really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not zero, you know, whatever. Yeah. Coins. Yeah. Coins. Coins to Molotov cocktails. So that's what Sylvia says. So who threw that Molotov cocktail, Sylvia? <laughs> yeah, she, she doesn't actually say. Carter actually questions whether Sylvia was at Stonewall at all. Because he finds several inconsistencies in her accounts of the night. So, firstly, in one interview, Sylvia says it was the first time that I'd ever been to friggin' Stonewall. I mentioned before how Sylvia didn't like Stonewall. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Kyla says in other accounts she said that she'd been there many times. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what specific accounts he's referring to that say she'd been there many times. I do know that she says she used to go there for pickups as a drug runner, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of different to going there to drink. Yeah, so both those statements could be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, both those statements could be true, and that could be an explanation for this discrepancy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. If it is the first time she's been there as a patron, that's pretty convenient. (laughs) That's quite a night. Yeah. 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 Secondly, Carter mentions that in one account, Sylvia says she was in drag, and in another account, she says she wasn't in drag. I mean, couldn't that be explained away by their (laughs) sort of like, now I am, now I'm not sort of outfits? Yeah, yeah. So the best description I have of Sylvia's outfit from Sylvia herself says she was in, quote, semi-drag. So she was wearing a suit, but a women's suit. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a wig on, but she had her hair out, and I think it was quite long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she had makeup on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, so right, like... is it drag? Is it not drag? It's almost as if having this like very black and white discussion about a community that has ever overlapping liminal states as the norm is difficult. <laughs> Thirdly, Sylvia mentions that Marsha was having a birthday party uptown that night. But Marsha's birthday isn't in June. It's in August. So that seems unlikely. Marsha also mentioned she was having a party uptown that night. So it seems like Sylvia's just either misremembered what the party was for, or like we've all been to birthday parties that are months out from the actual birthday. When in August is Marsha's birthday? I couldn't tell you the exact date, but I think it's later August. Because I was going to say, this is low June, it's early August, that's really only a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like Marsha was having a party, but maybe it wasn't a birthday party. Mm -hmm. I don't think misremembering the reason of a party is enough to say, you weren't there. Yeah. Like... Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I Um, misremember the reasons for parties constantly in my life. I think one of the things about adulthood is we all just need to admit that we don't know when our friends' birthdays are. (laughs) (laughs) What's most difficult to reconcile about the question of whether Sylvia was at the riots and what she did there is that while Sylvia says she was in the bar when police arrived and she gives an account of, you know, having a good night and I've told her about that already. According to Carter, Marsha said that Sylvia had passed out on a bench after taking heroin in Bryant Park, which is about three kilometres away from Stonewall, and that Marsha herself woke Sylvia up after the riots began. Okay. I don't have quotes from Marsha on this. This is just something that Carter said that I have to take Carter's word for. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of any eyewitness account that placed Sylvia at Stonewall mm-hmm. beyond Sylvia's own account. Mm-hmm. So that's all my information on Sylvia. Okay. So Marsha, Sylvia, the shot glass. 
<laughs> We're done with. Yeah, Marsha and Sylvia, neither of them started the riots. There are other eyewitness accounts that place Marsha there. Marsha was involved in the riots. Mm-hmm. Sylvia says she was there. Marsha apparently says she wasn't there or she turned up later. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that if she was there, either then or later, she was drunk and high. Yep. And so were many other eyewitnesses. So you can see how these accounts get confused and how people say, oh, she was there at the start. No, she turned up later on. Like when people mm-hmm. can't keep track, not only because they're drunk and high, but also because they're in a violent crowd in this quite scary and yeah know. it was dark it was the middle of the night yeah like they were drunk they were high it was a crowd of hundreds of people there was violence like there are so many reasons why it is unclear yeah 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 it is true you know how people like talk about stonewall and what the truth about stonewall mm-hmm. is and whatnot i have never once heard someone be like but they were drunk or they were high I've never heard that be, like, part of the narrative people talk about. I'm yeah. sure it is in sources like Hardest Book or whatever, mm. but just in, like, the discussions the community has. Yeah. And, like, of course, as soon as we started saying this, I was like, oh, obviously people were drunk at Tabara 1 a.m. on a Friday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, up until recording this episode, if you'd asked me when did they occur in terms of time of day, I would have been like, I don't know, like the early evening? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. the afternoon? Like, I had no idea. So the yeah. fact that it's the middle of the night really changes. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, and I think it really explains why it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what happened or what the truth about Stonewall is. And Carter says that in writing his book, he sat down and he got out maps of Stonewall the bar so a floor plan at the bar and mm-hmm. he got out a map of the surrounding area and he said to people you know point to me on the map where you were and tell me you know approximately what time you thought this happened yeah. and he kind of started putting pins right. on a map and constructing it that way to try and put together his camp. that's great good job Carter. Yeah. yeah and like how long did this go on for like so like the bar was entered at 120 the bar was entered at 120 we'll talk about what happened afterwards but Around 4 a.m. ish. Yeah, so we're talking like, were kind like of approximately weird. a three hour period. Yeah. So, like, people could have come and gone. Like, there's a lot of yeah. ambiguity there. Yeah, and like Sylvia, for example, says in her account, and I'm not quite clear why, but her partner Gary said to her, Let's go home and get a change of clothes. Mm. And she said, No, I don't want to leave. This is the revolution. Mm. But, you know, things like that. Like, she was going to go home and get changed. Craig left to get his camera because he knew something big was happening. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, none of his photos came out, which really oh, sucks. That sucks. Uh, yeah. I love him just being like, gay power, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, he went and got his camera and he went to a payphone. He phoned the uh, New York Post and the New York Times. And I can't remember what the third one is, but like the three major daily yeah, newspapers at yeah. the time and told them what was happening. Craig so, like, is just... Craig oh, is such a guy. Yes. What yeah. a great... Craig's on the person. ball. Yeah, Craig yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Is Craig still living? I don't think he is. Okay. Well, um, we should talk about him sometime. Yeah, I'm, I don't we think he is. We should have a full-length episode of us talking about how great Craig was. Yeah, Craig is just great. <laughs> Craig is just great. And yeah. I think Craig is really great because he immediately recognized that what was happening was political. Mm-hmm. Craig sounds like a great person to have if someone ever needed a Heimlich or something like that. I feel like I'd just be like, got this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Craig is great. All right. Okay. So, so that's the first brick slash shot glass slash whatever. Well, we haven't heard anything about a brick yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no brick. No brick. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to emphasize, now that I've 
discussed how I don't think either Marshall or Sylvia incited the riots, Mm -hmm. that that doesn't mean that trans women or trans feminine people didn't play a key role in the riots. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think that when people have this debate about was it the Stonewall lesbian, was it Marsha P. Johnson, what they're really having a debate about is did lesbians bring us gay power or did trans women bring us gay power? Like yeah. that's, that's what they're really fighting about. And Yeah, I mean, the discussion I think specifically is do trans people deserve a place in the movement? And the answer is yes. And also the answer is this is not predicated on one act. Even if this was one act which started the riots, and even if we are going to talk about who we should thank for the riots, there were a lot of people there. There were many, many people involved. I've already mentioned Tammy as a trans feminine Mm -hmm. person who potentially started the riots. Mm -hmm. Many witnesses do specifically single out street queens as the group which fought hardest at Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And this is often credited to the fact that they were used to fighting police. They were Mm -hmm. used to you know, fighting for whatever they wanted and needed because they were homeless, they were living on the streets, they had no other option. And also they had much less to lose. So if you are, you know, a cis white man who goes to Stonewall in secret, you're not going to get out there and riot when Craig's there with his camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to go home before anyone sees you yeah. because you've got a whole life yeah, that so you can disrupt. go to your accountant job on Monday. Yeah, and exactly. And not have your life ruined. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Whereas if you're a street queen, it's not going to have your life ruined to be seen in a riot. You've probably been arrested 50 times before. Yeah. And we talked about how Marsha and Sylvia said, I lost count after I you know, got arrested 100 times. Yeah. That was not verbatim. <laughs> yeah, no, Marsha did say, I've been arrested more than 100 times and then yeah. I stopped counting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was just a normal part of their life. Yeah. Mm. So it makes sense that they would fight hardest because there wasn't that same life to disrupt. Their lives had already been disrupted. Mm. Yeah. So one witness, for example, remembers that it was the street queens who started pelting the police with coins, which I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Another describes seeing Marsha, quote, just in the middle of the whole thing, screaming and yelling and throwing rocks. One of the very few photos we have of the night shows three street queens right up in the face of the police. And one of them, whose name is Jackie Hormona, is reaching out his hand either to grab a cop or to push away the cop. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have photographic evidence of these people fighting the police. Yeah. yeah. Was that a delivery pronoun for Jackie? Yeah, I can it. Yeah, okay. And most people do seem to use okay. him and pronouns for Jackie. Did so, you say Jackie Hormona? Yes. Is that a fake name? Because hormones? <laughs> yes. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> there was like some discussion of like... these 60s and 70s gay styles. Did Jackie go by Jackie Hormona because he was on hormones or did Jackie go by Jackie Hormona because he was quite a masked street queen and not on hormones and so it was kind of a bit of a joke in that way ah uh, okay oh, so people yeah. said both I don't actually know <laughs> yeah. what the motivation I mean you know was. like there's like drag queen names now that are play on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah then a lot of the street queen names like we generally talk about Marta and Sylvia who have just kind of normal women's names but a lot of the street queens names are much more like modern drag queen names mm-hmm. oh really I didn't know that yeah mm-hmm. so Jackie Hormone is one example one is called Congo Woman sure is Congo the first name and woman the surname or is it all kind of one thing <laughs> I think it's all kind of one thing I all only right. really heard her referred to as Congo Woman one's called Miss New Orleans one's called Zazu Nova which I don't really know what that is or means but it's a pretty great name yeah it's pretty great oh I'm really thinking about how all of these people are like 16 <laughs> <laughs> yeah all of these people are 16 these are kind of like my first URL <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Baby's first email address. That's yeah. so true. They are also, and that's probably obvious from Congo woman, they are also often specific references to their race. I can't mm. think of any other specific examples, but we know that Marsha originally, when she arrived in New York, went by Black Marsha. Mm-hmm. Right. So they specifically reference the fact that they're either Black or Latinx, or there was one I'm aware of who was East Asian. Okay. We never hear about East Asian people in this community. Yeah, no, we never do. We never do. But I am aware of one, and I'm sorry, but I can't remember their name. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yep. Just to get back to what Eli was saying before about the way that this is framed and the way that it's kind of an argument about whether or not trans people should be involved in the movement. I mean, Mm. obviously, as we've sort of said already, they should, and it's a ridiculous question. But it's like, it's an especially ridiculous question because, you know, in the scenario where trans people were the ones who started the Stonewall riots, no one would claim that lesbians should be excluded mm. from the queer yeah, movement, right? absolutely. So, like, why is this only being applied one way and the mm. answer is transphobia? Yeah, like, yeah. And also, yeah. like, if you are having this debate about who started the riots, people saying Marsha started the riots, sure, they're not really examining the evidence of what role the Stonewall lesbian may have played or what role Tammy or Ray may have played because nobody examines Tammy and Ray. (laughs) (laughs) Only Alice. Only me and Carter. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Carter. And Duberman. You can have a club. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So people who are highlighting the role of Marsha or Sylvia, even if that's not historically accurate, aren't doing it at the expense of the role of, say, lesbians. Mm. Whereas people highlighting the role of lesbians, so often that's not just, oh, so probably a lesbian started Stonewall and here's some evidence that it wasn't Marsha despite what people are saying. It also includes Marsha identified as a gay male drag queen and therefore he should not be given credit for the actions of a woman. This is sexism. Women are being pushed out of the movement. It's kind of how, and I'm very sorry for this comparison, but it reminds me of how Donald Trump talks about all of the allegations against him, where he's like, that's not collusion, but if it was, collusion's legal anyway. Whereas it's like, Marsha didn't do it, but if Marsha did do it, Marsha's a man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly how it is. That's mm. how it is. Marsha's mm. just, Marsha's not a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can hear all about it in our episode on Marsha. Yes, you can. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, if people this Pride Month tell you that Marsha P. Johnson was a man, tell them that she wasn't and they can come fight us and we'll fight them for you and you can just have a nice Pride Month. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, One specific thing that I found often used in these people saying Marsha didn't throw the first brick and beside Marsha is a man is the claim that in the documentary Pay It No Mind, which is based off interviews with Marsha, she says, and this is usually put in quotes, I'm a man. And this is given so commonly on the internet as a quote from that documentary. That's not a quote in that documentary. She never says those words in that documentary. That's just false. So... So... Yeah, you have to question when you... Not even being clever about hating trans women. No, when you see people saying this person threw the first brick or this person threw the first punch, why are they saying it and what else are they bringing to the table? Mm. And is it transphobia? Because it's probably transphobia. But yeah, I think it's also important to reiterate here that people who say these sorts of things often act as if the movement is something that trans people are currently trying to take away from Mm. gay people. Yeah. And not something that they've collaboratively built over, like, literally over a century. Yeah, yeah. And I think when we talk about, like, when I brought up the importance of street queens and the fact that so many people emphasize that street queens fought at Stonewall, 
street queens were not, I mean, individual street queens were, but as a group, that's not a gay group or a trans group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Like we were saying earlier in the episode that you can't easily carve up some of these categories into Mm. the gay ones and the trans ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Neither can you carve up who gets to own Stonewall. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Oh, I think that's about all we need to do tonight. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I feel like that's our key point made. So, let's get back to what is actually happening outside the Stonewall Inn right now. Yep. Right now. Right now. In 2019. (laughs) In 1969. Oh, hey, that's 50 years ago. Crazy. So, the crowd turned violent for whatever reason. People started to throw coins. Maybe they were already throwing coins. People started to throw bottles. There was a construction site nearby, which is where you get the comments of people throwing bricks. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the Molotov cocktails. Mm -hmm. People started climbing out of patrol vans that they'd been put in because there just weren't enough cops to keep them in. Mm -hmm. And they were kicking and hitting the police on their way out. At least one cop was treated for a bite. (laughs) Get bit. So there's... How many cops are here now? Backup has arrived? Some backup arrived? I think there's a total of 10 cops here now. So one extra patrol van did arrive that Pine called before the radio Mm -hmm. started getting intercepted. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's about 10 cops. Maybe it's 10 and Pine, 10 or 11 cops. Okay. God, that would have been so terrifying for those cops. Oh, I say yeah. with zero sympathy. Yeah, yeah. They, they were very scared. And the crowd was also still growing. So I mentioned that Craig went and phoned the papers, but a lot of people just went to pay phones and phoned friends, either queer friends or friends that they knew from other protest movements, yeah. and told them what was going on and said, get out here. Because even when you were saying earlier that, like, it wasn't just queer people who sort of started getting yeah, that yeah. initial crowd... Based on the historical context, it does sound like there was just kind of a general protest movement. Yeah, yeah. There were people from other protest movements. And also the village, Greenwich Village, is just kind of known for being an anti-establishment place in a bunch Mm. of ways. And it's got a history of protest. Hmm. So people who lived in that area and people who went out in that area hated cops. Yeah. So So they were like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. Oh, boy, it's our weekly protest time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What's it about tonight? So eventually the patrol van did manage to drive off with some people inside. Mm -hmm. And... And there you go, I have a number. And then just 10 police remained behind. Okay. One observer says, The cops looked like someone who'd been bitten by a trusted pet. A look of astonishment and fear at the same time. <laughs> cool. Remember that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the police who remained took refuge inside the bar and they barricaded the door. Mm-hmm. So Pine had seen active service in World War II. He'd written the Army's manual on hand-to-hand combat. He was, like, super well-known for keeping his cool under fire. He was trained in judo. Oh, what? And he said, there was never any time that I felt more scared than I felt that night. Oh, wow. Pine is so fascinating. (laughs) Pine is an interesting guy, yeah. Yeah. Like, he feels very much like an anti-villain. Yeah, Like, in the way where, you know, like, obviously what he's doing is bad, but also, like, the way you were saying how, like, his reasons for doing so were, you know... Based on his love of law and order rather than necessarily purely based on homophobia, Mm, mm. um, which is super interesting. Yeah, he much later on said, so he said that, you know, people were being arrested because that was the law, but, you know, what kind of law was that? And he also said, if I had a role starting the gay rights movement, Mm. then, you know, I'm glad that the movement started. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I know that's kind of like Malcolm Turnbull taking credit for gay marriage. But... <laughs> that is a good comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, what I'm trying to say is just he's an interesting guy. He's not just a homophobic cop. He 
has motivations that are not necessarily the ones you expected. Yeah. It's just interesting, and I feel it's probably reflective of history in general in that, you know, yeah. it's just not as black and white as we've sort of said several times already as yeah. you know, we usually think about these kind of historical events. Yeah, that is true. So the police barricaded themselves inside the building. They mm-hmm. continued trying to call for backup and the calls continued to be intercepted. Mm-hmm. When they tried to use the bar's phone, they discovered that somebody had cut the phone line. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I can see why he was kind of terrified. Yeah. 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 You can see why he was terrified. I mean, I imagine he thought he was going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like, mm. that crowd sounds like they could have just ripped someone apart. I think yeah. they could have. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think they could have. It would be really interesting to see. I assume none of these cops are going to die. None of these cops are going to die. Okay. It would be interesting to see how we remember this event if they had just killed those cops. Yeah. That is true. I mean, obviously it's a violent riot, but there's surprisingly little serious injury. So I mentioned one cop was treated for a bite. Another was treated for a broken wrist. Uh-huh. One was hit in the eye okay. by a projectile. But right. yeah, that's the worst injuries the cops got. Were there serious injuries on the parts of the crowd? I can't remember what happened on what night. I know one person lost their fingers from having shot in a police car door. Oh, that's the worst that I'm aware of. But that's oh, pretty bad. Gosh. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. bad though. Yeah. Yeah. So the police inside the bar pulled out their guns. Mm-hmm. A couple of them stationed themselves on either side of the door. Mm-hmm. One of them saying, we'll shoot the first motherfucker that comes through that door. Mm. It is amazing no one was killed at this event. It is amazing no one was killed. Yeah, absolutely. One of the police... So I mentioned they barricaded themselves in the bar. They did kind of go into the bar, come out, go back in a few times before yeah. they actually like, barricaded it. Mm. And one of the police during that time did throw their gun into the crowd <gasps> because they were that scared. But they didn't fire the gun. And I think we're incredibly lucky that they didn't fire that gun. Oh, my God. Also or incredible. that no one picked up that gun. Or that no one gun picked up that gun and fired and that gun. And fired it at him. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if the gun was loaded when he threw it. But, you know, there was a gun there. It would be unlikely that the gun wasn't loaded. Yeah, that why would that weird. gun not be loaded? I was going to say oh, yeah, that's true, actually, that yeah. the safety was on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Given that he was off. presumably holding it, it could have just gone off and hit someone in the crowd, and then I imagine history And then people would have died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, then, and then probably the cops would have died. Yeah, I mean, that's something that Pine says, is Pine says, I really did not want to shoot. I was very reluctant to give the order to yes. shoot mm. because I knew that if we shot, somebody would die. It would could be them, it could be us, mm. but somebody yeah. would die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and right. well, he says, I, I didn't respect that. Yeah, he says, I didn't think this was a law worth dying over or worth mm. killing people over. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess that's where we're lucky that it wasn't just a rapidly homophobic cop who yeah. was trying to make an example out of queer people. Yeah, yeah, and Pine specifically was going around to each of the cops in the bar and talking to them individually and saying, yeah. how are you doing? Right. Are you okay? Yeah. Don't shoot. If you shoot, this will be the end of your career. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Right. That is very interesting. So, yeah, Pine him as a person. deliberately did this very consciously. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is Pine alive? Not anymore. Okay. No. Yeah, I was about to say, because didn't you say he served in... Did you oh, he right. served in World War II. World War II, right. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, even at the time of the riots, he must have been in his, like, 40s. Yeah, least. I think he was in his 40s, yeah. Um, but he has talked a lot about Stonewall, and you can read a lot of what he said. Yeah. And it's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So, outside, this was when people started throwing Molotov cocktails, people upturned bins started lighting rubbish on fire and just kind of sticking it through whatever cracks they could find in mm-hmm. the windows or under the door or whatever mm-hmm. led by miss new orleans one of the street queens i've mentioned they pulled up a parking meter and started <sighs> using it as a battering ram to try and break down the door 
That's amazing. Oh my god. How like, does one pull up a parking meter? <laughs> it is mentioned that it wasn't a very securely, like, it was oh, already so kind of coming noticed a dodgy parking meter, and yeah. they're like, by George, this just might work. Yeah. I can't remember who it was, but one person who mentions it says, we saw Miss New Orleans go over and start trying to pull up a parking meter, and we went, she can't do that by herself, and a group of them went over to help her, and then they got it out of the ground and yep. started yeah. trying to batter down the door. Eventually, inside, a policewoman was able to leave the bar through a vent in the back. Get out onto the roof, get down onto the next street over, and call from a payphone for backup. Okay, yep. Journalist Howard Smith, who was inside the bar with the police, very luckily for us as historians, Mm -hmm. says, Pine tells me later he didn't shoot because he'd heard the sirens in time and felt no need to kill someone if help was arriving. Oh, wow. So that's like a history on the edge of a knife. Yeah. Yeah. So So the fact that that um, policewoman got out through a vent. Yeah. 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 And the fact that backup came exactly when it did and, and not five minutes later. And the fact that they could hear the backup. Like, this yeah. is a boarded up place. There's With a them. crowd outside. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So many little moments, as there is in any kind of big historical event like this. Yeah. Yeah. So many little moments where it could have gone so differently. Mm. So backup arrived in the form of... First, the fire brigade, because that was the first people that could get there. Mm-hmm. Then other local police forces. And then eventually the TPF, which is the Tactical Patrol Force, or the riot police. Okay. Oh, okay. Yep. yep. So they have clubs and shields and yep. helmets and armor and tear mm-hmm. gas. Veteran activist Bob Kohler, who was there, says, I had been in enough riots to know that the fun was over. These guys had helmets and lived to break heads. Okay. As expected, the TPF turned up and the rioters retreated. Mm-hmm. What the TPF didn't expect was that they ran around the block popped up on the other side of them and started advancing again. Oh my god. Wow. And they repeated this several times every time the TPF turned around and forced them into retreat. They just reappear on the other side. That's very intense, but also very comedic. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very, it it's very, um, <laughs> Benny Hill. Benny Hill. Yeah. yeah. It is. And I think that is a factor that people who were there bring up. Yeah. So on top of that, three street queens in Scare Drag, Martin Boyce, Spurdy Rivera, and one other who I don't know by name, formed a chorus line and started doing high kicks in the face of these advancing riot police Mm. and singing describing the same stunt the following night one witness says the queens did not move they just continued to kick and to sing as the police just moved closer and closer and closer and you just wondered how long are they going to keep this up before they break and run the police got closer and closer to them with their clubs and their helmets and their riot gear and the whole thing and i thought it was just very inspiring their bravery like don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes it wasn't until the police were eight feet away from them that they finally broke and ran this whole thing is so, like, serious and also absurd. Yeah. Like, very serious, very frightening, but also with a veneer of absurd and a lot of style is just, like, the most archetypal queer thing possible in the world. Yeah, and people did mention that, that facing down against the riot police who are, like, fully armed, they're in, like, a Roman-style phalanx with their mm. shields, three kids in tight pants and, you know, yeah. makeup with teased hair doing a kick line totally ruins the image of the riot police yeah. why the hell do you need a club to fight them yeah so this kind of camp way of fighting back and the, the humorous things they did gave power to the riots yeah yeah that's super interesting and there is one person and i can't remember who it is i haven't got it written down who became involved in queer activism after this and he says the reason is he saw that chorus line in the face of the riot police and that made him realize that his sexuality was something worth fighting for. Oh, God. 
that's so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at about 4am, the crowd did eventually disperse. Mm-hmm. They don't frame this as the police winning. They kind of frame this as like, hey, we got bored. We got over it. <laughs> <laughs> we stopped. Yeah. <laughs> and people did kind of still hang around on the street, kind of talking about what had happened and what it meant and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They weren't driven away. Yeah. They just kind of stopped. Yep. Only 13 people were arrested that night. Mm-hmm. So that was Friday night. By Saturday morning, it seems like most queer people in New York had already heard about what had happened. That's thanks in part to Craig, who, as we mentioned, had the now to phone everyone. Mm-hmm. Craig including the papers. a bloody hero. <laughs> I love Craig. A true blue hero. Yeah, story. So, as well as Craig, a gay man named Felice Bacano also credits what he calls queen control with getting the news out. So, queen control is a kind of queer telephone tree whereby, quote, people would call you up and say, this is queen control calling, and you didn't even ask who it was, and they would just start giving you information. Oh, my gosh. Felice is the only source I have for this. Unfortunately, I don't have many people talking about this, but it's very cool. It is great. It's amazing. It is great. It is great. That day, that Saturday, protest signs already started appearing outside Stonewall, saying things like support gay power. I feel like Greg was involved. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In the evening, a crowd started to gather outside the inn again, and they were chanting slogans like gay power again, and Christopher Street belongs to Queens, and things like this. My Craig sense is tingling. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, this was already a huge break from previous queer behavior in New York, Mm. just being out on the street and visibly gay, not in a little bar you had to get in through a peephole or whatever. Yeah. Was already so different to how people had been behaving. As the evening went on, the events on Saturday largely followed the pattern of the previous night. Mm. So people started to throw things and set fires. The police turned violent. Marsha is mentioned climbing a lamppost and dropping a heavy bag through the windscreen of a police car, which had cops inside. (gasps) So Saturday night overall is talked about as being more violent than Friday night. Mm -hmm. From both the police side and the rioters' side. Mm-hmm. How impressive is it to climb a lamppost holding a heavy bag that can break <laughs> a police car window? Yeah, that's true. I hadn't even considered the logistics of that, but like several no witnesses mentioned it. Told me that Marshall was jacked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a new fact about Marshall B. Johnson. <laughs> Queerest fact, breaking news, Marshall B. Johnson, not a man, maybe asexual, definitely jacked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so once again, around 2am, the TPF arrived and the crowd dispersed. Mm -hmm. When I say the crowd dispersed, they did similar things to they had the previous night. They eventually dispersed. Yep. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday nights were comparatively quiet. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the weekend anymore. Mm. It rained. (laughs) You know, (laughs) stuff like that. On Wednesday, the Greenwich newspaper, The Village Voice, published two articles about the riots. One written by Howard Smith, who I mentioned was inside the bar with the cop. Yep, yep. And one by Lucian Truscott, who was outside in the crowd. Truscott's article in particular was quite homophobic, and this kind of reignited the anger. And so people turned out again on Wednesday night and did riot again. Mm-hmm. And once again, it followed a similar pattern to previous nights. This was the final night of the Stonewall riots. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the repercussions of Stonewall and why it's considered so important. I don't have time to go as in-depth into this as I would like to. I'm going to talk about two specific things. One is the foundation of the Gay Liberation Front. The other is the foundation of Christopher Street Liberation Day, which became Pride. I think they both deserve their own episode. So I just want to acknowledge that there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that I don't have time to discuss here. Mm -hmm. So starting with the Gay Liberation Front. 
Following Stonewall, the Mattachine Society held a public meeting to organise a vigil to commemorate Stonewall. They wanted this to be a silent vigil because mm-hmm. that was about as you know out there as Mattachine was willing to be. Mm-hmm. The convener, Dick Leitch, was wearing a brown suit. He got up in front of the crowd and he explained that the gay community had to retain the favour of the establishment in order to be accepted and so on. Mm-hmm. In response, a man named Jim Ferret, who already had experience in other protest movements, stood up and yelled, We don't want acceptance, goddammit. We want respect. We're going to go where straights go and do anything with each other that they do. And if they don't like it, well, fuck them. Woo! Woo! <laughs> That's pretty much the reaction that Jim got at the time, yep? Yep. So that was met with wild applause. The meeting had to break up early. Yeah. <laughs> Dick did not read the room. Jim no. did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty indicative of kind of the change in attitudes and the conflict that was caused in the movement by this new idea that came out of Stonewall that you could fight back against the establishment, that you could be out on the streets saying you were queer and be proud of that mm-hmm. and demand that people respected you for that. Mm-hmm. And that the, the queer movement should follow in the footsteps of other... Yeah, should follow the pattern of like yeah. the Black Panthers or the anti-war movement in mm-hmm. violently fighting by whatever means necessary mm-hmm. for what they wanted. Yeah, trying to actively take up space. Yeah, yeah, rather than trying to fit into whatever little space they might be allowed to have. Yeah. I will mention that the vigil did go ahead. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a silent vigil mm-hmm. in the end, but it did go ahead. On July 30th, so this is almost a year before the first Pride, I want to mention, mm-hmm. around 500 people, led by Marty Robinson and Martha Shelley, who were members of the Machine Action Committee, mm-hmm. marched to Stonewall. They stopped outside. They sang We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. And this was the first openly gay march on the USA's east coast. Mm-hmm. The Village Voice reported on it, and they wrote... Maybe it wasn't just a joke. Maybe there really was gay power. Ultimately, these new dissident voices like Martha and Marty and Jim and a whole lot of others, some who were already in Mattachine, some who were not, formed a new group, which was called the Gay Liberation Front. I'm going to acknowledge, and I don't have time to talk about this in depth, that this was a largely, once again, middle-class, white, cis, male society. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, two things set the GLF apart from previous groups. First of all, it wasn't secretive about what it was. Obviously, gay is right there in the name. Mm -hmm. And it fought the village voice to be allowed to publicly advertise. So the village voice didn't want the word gay in its paper. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that it was willing to publish a whole lot of slurs in Truscott's article. Mm -hmm. But the GLF fought and eventually won against the village voice to be allowed to advertise that they were a gay society in Mm -hmm. the paper. Yep. Secondly, the GLF was a revolutionary organization. And I don't mean revolutionary in terms of bringing new things that had never been done before. I mean revolutionary in terms of wanting to overthrow the government. <laughs> yep. So they had no interest in fitting into the establishment or finding a place that the establishment would give them. Mm-hmm. They ultimately wanted to put an end to the system. And they teamed up. I've mentioned anti-war activists, Black Panthers, and all kinds of similar revolutionary and anti-establishment groups to mm-hmm. achieve those goals. So those two new things that the GLF brought to the queer movement are what makes it so important and the fact that Stonewall kind of sparked its foundation is one of the things that makes Stonewall so important. Yeah. Moving on to Pride. Mm -hmm. In July 1969, Craig conceived the idea of Christopher Street Liberation Day. Shout out to Craig. (laughs) (laughs) We stand one, bracket, one, Craig. (laughs) This entire episode is a shout out to Craig. (laughs) We've been very clear on our feelings about Craig. It's funny because I'd never heard of Craig until I started researching. I mean, I'd heard from him in our Harvey Milk episode, but I was just like, oh yeah, some dude who talks back to cops. Good on him. But yeah, he's so important. He's great. 
Mm -hmm. Good man. Mm -hmm. So he came up with the idea of an annual event to commemorate the Stonewall riots. So there had previously been an annual event held in Philadelphia called the Annual Reminder, which was a protest designed to just keep the awareness in the public's minds that there were gay people and that they did not have rights. Mm -hmm. And the annual reminder had been framed within that kind of respectability, conservative image that was the thing in the gay movement at the time. So people at the annual reminder, men had to wear suits, women had to wear dresses and tights, you weren't allowed to hold hands. These were rules put on it by the queer organisers. Yeah. Yeah. And... Craig, on his way back from the last annual reminder, which took place that July 1969, thought, no, we need a new annual event that fits the new movement and that fits what we stand for now, which is not this anymore. Mm -hmm. So he organized a committee to fund Christopher Street Liberation Day. He consciously made up that committee of representatives from a variety of different queer groups. He didn't want it to be an event that was run by one queer group. Mm. They met regularly in Craig's apartment. Mm-hmm. They had very few resources, so they relied on donations and things like, you know, free graphic design work. The GLF treasurer, Marty Nixon, did a lot of sneaky photocopying at work to get that publicity <laughs> out there. Bless. Sneaky photocopying is a tradition of activism, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first Christopher Street Liberation Day took place on June 28, 1970. A few hundred people were present when the march was set to begin. They were all terrified, pretty much. Gay playwright Doric Wilson remembers a friend saying to him on the way there, I've never been so scared in my life. And Doric responded, please let there be more than 10 of us. There were, though. There were. There were several hundred of them. At first, there were several hundred of them. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about it in a sec. So they turned out and they had signs that said things like, better blatant than latent. And my favourite chant, which goes, ho, ho, homosexual, the ruling class is ineffectual. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. It's so good. Bring that one back. (laughs) The ruling class remains ineffectual. Yeah. Um, We remain homosexual. (laughs) Finger guns. So yeah, there were a few hundred people at the start, but there were many more queer people watching from the footpath who were at first too scared to join. Mm. And gradually as the march went on, they got Mm. the courage to join in. Mm. Ultimately, estimates at the time put the total number at about 2,000 people. That's great. That's awesome. Mm. Mm. And, like, that's a huge deal given, you know, we were talking towards the start of the episode about the membership of... uh, Of Mattachine. Mattachine. Yeah. Yeah, so five years earlier, uh, Randy and Craig and a few others had organized what I think is the first ever gay protest on the East Coast of America, but, you know, I could be proven wrong. Mm. And eight people turned up. Oh, Wow. One was a baby, so seven people turned up. (laughs) Point five people. (laughs) Yeah, but like such kudos to those seven people. Yeah, Yeah. good on those seven. Baby, it's not forget about the baby. Yeah, kudos to that baby. Yeah, good on that baby. I hope that baby grew up to be a proud adult. Yeah. As well as Christopher Street Liberation Day, simultaneous marches were held in a few other U.S. cities. By the next year, these marches had also spread to London and Paris, Mm. and out of this grew today's Pride celebrations, which have been celebrated on every continent, including Antarctica, and which millions of people now participate in. The fact that it went from Reminder Day to Pride is so, like, on the nose in terms of being a, like, (laughs) transition between a respectability politics movement to a movement that's more... Yeah. ...anti-establishment. Like, if you put that in a fictional novel, I would probably be like, oh, it's a bit on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's also a lot to be said about the change from Christopher Street Liberation Day to Pride, Mm. but that's for another episode. Yeah. And yeah, now Pride is 
celebrated across the world. Yeah. It's true. It is. So I just want to conclude by saying that while Stonewall didn't start the queer rights movement, and we've talked a little bit about what that involved beforehand, we can't deny that it did change it. And it taught many queer people that they could be proud of their queer identity and that they shouldn't and that they didn't have to force themselves into socially acceptable boxes and ask the establishment nicely if they wanted to deserve human rights. To quote the former street queen Tommy Lannigan Schmidt, don't ever think that if there were no Stonewall that it would be just like it is now. History isn't something that you look back at and say, oh, that's inevitable. That would have happened anyway. No, it happens because people make decisions. And I just want to emphasize as we end that the people who made these decisions came from all walks of the queer community and all of them share in this part of queer history. And in many ways, that's what made Stonewall so important. Mm-hmm. With that, we've been Queer as Fat. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And we'll be putting a lot of extra content on social media this month for Pride Month. So I definitely encourage you to follow us on those platforms if you don't already. We're Queer as Fact on all three of those platforms. You can also contact us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. And you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. If you do find us on iTunes, we really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. We're also very excited that we now have a Patreon and a Redbubble store. So if you've been looking for ways to support Queer as Fact beyond telling your friends how great we are, I'd encourage you to sponsor us on our Patreon or to buy some merch on our Redbubble store. Or both. And you'll be able to find links to both of those in the episode description, as well as on our social media. We'll be back on the 8th of June, where we'll be talking about Gilbert Baker and the creation of the Pride flag. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.